Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 390 with Ed Muzio. Ed is showing a better way to be flexible and adaptive with your teams and adjusting as things unfold by iterating wisely. So you'll learn one, how many organizations are planning poorly, two, approaches for greater clarity, and three, how to make wiser group decisions. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F390. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you check out some of our cool stuff. One of the newest cool things is some extra features on a little drop-down indicator on the podcast section of the navigation bar. So if you go to awesomeatyourjob.com, you'll see, hey, podcast and the other stuff. Well, there's a little drop-down carrot, if you will, which if you click, will reveal some really cool goodies such as every episode tagged by the topic and competency covered, an index of every Gold Nugget, if you're a Gold Nugget subscriber, so you can find those all the faster, as well as some of the favorite episodes based on the data associated with downloads and engagement. So some cool extra stuff over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's the story on Ed. Ed Muzio is CEO of Group Harmonics and an award-winning three-time author. An expert in the scientific study of measuring and modifying human behavior, he's a sought-after consultant to business and industry worldwide and a popular media source. His new book is Iterate, Run a Fast, Flexible, Focused Management Team, an Inc. original in 2018, and he can be found at iteratenow.com. Big thanks to Ed for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Ed, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's good to have you. And I'm excited to chat about your your good stuff. But first, tell us a little bit about you learning the piano at the same time your kindergartner is learning the piano. Uh-uh. So my kindergartner had a, had a talent for music. So we got a piano and got him in lessons. And I've always wanted to learn to play the piano. So I asked the instructor, you know, in the one-on-one lesson, can I take lessons as well? Thinking he would say, you're kind of too old for this. And he said, no, adults can learn. You know, it's a little different. So we go every week and he does his lesson for 30 minutes and I do my lesson for 15. And what I can tell you is I'm ahead of him now, Pete, and I'll be ahead of him, I'm guessing another six months to a year because I can take on more complex concepts, but he's going to get ahead of me and never look back because he has no problem with repetitious activity, right? He'll keep learning. He has no problem making mistakes and trying because that's just how kids learn, right? They fall down, get up again. And he has sort of infinite patience in the sense of he does get frustrated, but it's sort of like his whole life is about kind of bumping your head and, and going on. And so he has no hangups at all. Plus, his brain is so flexible, right? So I'm, I'm watching him 
get better and better. And I'm going, I have six months, maybe a year, and then he's going to just be amazing. And I'm going to be still pecking away at one note at a time kind of thing. And that's going to be it after that. Well, I have a feeling he's going to love that moment. <laughs> I just, I can remember when I beat my dad in chess and I knew he didn't let me win. And it was, it was powerful in the sense that it's like, whoa, I am capable of learning and growing to a point in which I have never been able to attain before. And, and I read a lot of books about chess from the library along the way. And it's like, wow, there's something to this learning, this discipline, this sticking with things uh, that uh, yields cool results. That sort of try, fail, try, check, try, fail, try again loop is human powerfulness in learning action. And he's he's doing it. I think you're right. I think when the day comes, he'll be pretty happy and I'll be pretty happy too, honestly. Cool. Well, well you talk about try, fail, try, fail. Uh, that's about as good a segue as we could ever get. You've got a book it's called Iterate. What is right. the story behind it? Well, Iterate is, is I mean, it's that same idea, right? Iterate is take a step, learn everything you can from that step, assuming the step was in the best direction you could figure out, but now check again and see, based on what you've learned, what your next step should be. So it's, it's a general concept. Iteration is used by software programs that produce models for aircraft flight or weather. Iteration is used by plants as they grow, right? It's incremental adjustment, and it's a learning loop, kind of like learning the piano, which is you know, take what you've learned and incorporate it into the next step. And, and my book, Iterate, is about what we know that management teams in really strong organizations do in that space to make sure the whole organization is iterating. Excellent. Well, so that sounds like a, a prudent, wise thing to do in terms of as you're trying to accomplish things and, and make them happen. You know, what sort of the alternatives that, that folks tend to try with less effectiveness? Well, you know, I like to talk about the, the sort of the story of, and I, I think you've even seen this in the book, but the story of walking to your car, right? So, so you walk out the door of the office or the mall and you've got three minutes to get to your car. And so you, you start walking and, and what I just said happens, right? Every step is the best step you can take from there. But what's important about that is as you're going along, you've got your feet, which is the workforce and they're detecting changes in the surface or, or they're detecting, you know, it's wet or something. And, and they're able to adjust without calling the CEO, which is your brain, right? Your brain set the pace and direction, get to the car in three minutes but your CEO is not involved too much in the work of your feet. Your feet use a resource. That's blood oxygen. They can make a call to middle management, which is cardiovascular, get some more. If they need a whole lot more, that gets escalated even further. And then you do get the message in your, in your CEO office, right? Which is breathe harder or walk slower. And then at the same time, you're, you're looking out over the horizon, right? So you're trying to say, is that my car that I'm walking to? Is there an obstruction in my way? And you're feeding information down. So you've got this sort of metaphorical organization where information is flowing both up and down and it's meeting at the right places, and decisions are getting made at all levels, just so that every step you take is the next best one from there. So when you notice, for example, that you're headed toward the wrong car, that's the moment you change direction, not two steps sooner and not five steps after. That's the model. The alternative, and what we see in a lot of organizations, unfortunately, is this sort of make a plan and then manage people as if sticking to the plan is the goal, right? And so you, you, know, you make a plan, you start walking on the line, and then you have this scenario where the people are sort of metaphorically saying, we're not heading toward the car anymore, and yet the institution can't seem to turn, right? That, that's management by one strict plan at the beginning of the year. It is the alternative. However, it does not produce nearly the observable levels of growth or agility or market dynamic receptiveness or any of those kind of things that, that an organization which can actually turn in small ways and big ways when new information comes up. Well, so you mentioned a few potential uh, indicators of performance or results. Could you share uh, maybe any any studies or, or research you've done that that show 
what kind of a difference it, it makes when you iterate versus stick doggedly to the original plan. You know, there's all kinds of anecdotal stories out there. It's the, the, the work, what, what this book is based on is it's based on actually about 70 years of research and experience. So the research actually goes back to something called the Institute for Social Research, which was post-World War II, literally following managers around and writing down what they were doing and looking to see, does management actually make a difference? Does it matter how you manage? And then it, it tracks all the way up to, we have information coming to us today about self-organizing systems like ant colonies out of the neuroscience field, which say, you know, ants kind of can find their way back and forth in these long lines because they leave a trail and they leave indicators of where they were and where to go next. That's called stigmergy, I believe. Don't quote me on that. So we've got this sort of long line of research that all kind of comes together and says, natural systems, computer systems, we know this is an effective way to solve problems. It's, it's intuitively obvious. And, you know, you can go find the big bears in any space. Like you go look at sort of Intel, for example, I used to work there during their growth years. You know, the, the famous sort of anecdotal story about Intel is in their early years, they were competing with Motorola and someone from Motorola, this is folklore really, but someone from Motorola said, I can't get an airplane ticket approved in the time it takes you to adjust your entire approach to our market, right? So because they could just take this whole big company and just shift it. That's what we see in these iterative companies is once we get these managers doing these simple five practices and doing them consistently, we start to see this agility emerge where, you know, we can stay the course for as long as we need to, but as soon as we need to turn, we can turn. And what are the five practices? Well, the first one is called output and status broadcasting. Now, I should say before I start, these are my words. And one of the challenges in this work is language, because if I say something that sounds like something you've heard of before, you'll sort of assume I'm talking about that. And that becomes problematic because really what we're trying to do is describe behaviors. So as I talk through these, Pete, you have to sort of think about, you know, the behavior I'm talking about as opposed to the, you know, the terminology. Mm -hmm. But just broadly speaking, there are five of them. The first output and status broadcasting is managers are clear and repeated with their teams, everyone else about what they're trying to produce with the resources they have under their control. And secondly, they produce dashboards and plots and a particular kind of forward-looking data that shows two levels of the future so that they can sort of show graphically, you know, here's where I thought I was trying to go. Here's what I now think is going to happen. Here's the difference between those two things so that conversations can be held about the difference. So that's number one. Number two is what I call work preview meetings. That's those conversations. That's management teams getting together saying, you know, where do we see this future variance? Where do we see a difference between the goal we're trying to achieve and the likely outcome of the path we're on? And what might we do with our resources to compensate for that? One of the great sort of tragedies, I think, of North American management in general is that so much time is spent in meetings looking backwards. Here's what was done. Here's a graph of everything I made up until this week. Here's a list of all the things we got done last year. Some of that is fine, but all you can do as a manager is move resources around at this moment to affect what happens in the future. So if you're not mostly spending your meeting time talking about that, how do we change the resources around or not based on what we now understand about the future that we didn't understand before, you're having a problem. So that's work preview meetings. That also gets into the third one, which is called group decision-making. And that's just the issue of once you're in one of those meetings and you detect a variance, it becomes complicated what you should do about it. And there's some particular information about how to make good group decisions. Things like, for example, voting is not a rational way to make decisions because people get focused on obtaining support rather than good information. So, so it's all around sort of coming to a good decision. That leads into the fourth one, which is called linked teams. And this is, we could talk quite a bit about this one, but the idea is that it's not an org chart. We don't have a set of individuals, each with their own goals. 
we have a set of teams run by managers and each management team has a set of goals and works as a team so that everyone's looking up at their manager's goals instead of fighting with their peers on their own goals. And that way those teams link together and do the work of the organization. All of that is necessary. And the last thing is the fifth practice, and that is what we call frontline self-sufficiency. That's the idea that an individual contributor, someone on the front line, has what they need to do their job and to do it efficiently and is so empowered to do it. And I hate to use the word empowered. It's more specific than that. But the net effect is they have what they need. Nothing's in their way. And they're so enabled, I guess I should say, to do that work that they can actually forecast their output. So we don't have frontline supervisors telling the staff how it's going. We have the frontline staff telling the supervisor, I'm on track, I'm ahead, I'm behind. And that's what leads to those forecasts that I was talking about, because that's how management ultimately knows what's going on. So, so that set of five things really keeps the organization always taking a step, looking forward, saying, here's what we thought was going to happen. Here's what we now think is going to happen. What adjustments should we make? Here's our decision to make them. Let's do that and move on. And then just iterating that cycle over and over again as they chomp away at their goal. Well, so let's dig into a little bit of this now. When you mentioned the having dashboards and you have two levels to the future, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, dashboards, by the way, is one of those dangerous terms because everyone has one and they, they already think they know what it means. So I do use the word, but I always kind of worry about that. So here's the concept. Let's take a really simple example. Now, this this can work for complex things too, but in a simple example, I'm producing some something in you know, the, the line that I run, and I'm supposed to make 100 a week. So in a typical sort of North American management situation, I would come to you, Pete, if you're my boss, and I'd have a graph, and it would show week by week how many I made up to today. Maybe if it was a good graph, it would also have some kind of a plan or a forecast line that would show, hey, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to stay flat, that's the plan, or I'm supposed to do you know, 10% more every week until I ramp to this level. And so, so that's the future. That's pretty standard in management. The problem with that is, of course, what you're going to ask me is, Ed, are you going to hit that forecast? And then there's going to be a long narrative discussion in which I sort of opine about that, right? <laughs> and, and then you try and sort of figure out if I'm trying to hide anything, right? It becomes this sort of this very ceremonial dance. Like, what we need instead is I need to have a second future on that graph. So I need to have, you know, what's done in the past, that's fine. I've got my plan line. This is what I'm supposed to deliver. And then I've got a second line that says, based on my best intelligence today, here's what I think is going to happen. Now, that second line might be right on top of the plan line, in which case there's nothing to talk about, or maybe it varies. Maybe I'm saying, look, I'm not going to get as many as I thought, or hey, I'm going to overrun. If that variance is big enough, that becomes something that you, me, and my peers in your management team need to talk about, because someone else may need to adjust some resources, or I may need to adjust some resources to deal with that fact, whether it's good or bad, right? Even if I'm ahead of the game, it's still potentially an issue for somebody who's going to get overwhelmed by my output, right? So difference is difference and difference needs attention. You said that there's the plan and then there is the, the projection is your, your best guess as to how things are going to unfold here. And, and I guess what gets interesting there is that there's all, you mentioned the dance, there's all these layers associated with, you know, expectation and authority and punishment, shoot the messenger activities or not. And it, it's almost like, you have to have a, a somewhat, you know, mature and respectful culture to even deal with the fact that a variance exists. You know, they, they might just be like, Ed, no, Ed, do the thing we agreed that you would do. Right. No, it's, <laughs> it's funny. You know, it is, and that, that is, so, you know, the North American manager, I always call it the North American manager model, right? We have this sort of mythology and it's, it's beautiful mythology. It, it says, you know, Pete, you're my boss. You say to me, Ed, look, these are your goals. 
Go and get them. I don't want to hear it, right? Just go and get your goals. So don't bring me forecasts that are different, right? Just get your work done, right? So that's that's the mythology. And, and by that mythology, you tell my peers the same thing. And then we all bring you our goals and you knit it together into what your boss wants. The problem with that is that I am going to have variance and my peers are going to have variance. And at some point, I'm going to come to you and say, I can't do this unless you give me some of Fred's money. And Fred's going to come and say, don't do that. I need, I need more of Ed's money, right? And you're going to become, and, and you know this if you've worked in, in any kind of management space, right? You become the referee. You're almost a, like a, a parent in a dysfunctional household where everyone is bringing you their problems. Everything is framed as mission critical, and it's your job to sort it out. Meanwhile, your boss is looking at you saying, is it going to happen? So your boss is looking down at you. You're looking down at me and my peers, and everyone's trying to sort out kind of, are these people lying to me? Are they telling the truth? So it's a very, it's a very non-trusting culture, but it's also a very preoccupied culture with trying to sort of sort out information. So what I'm saying is, you're right, it is a cultural shift. And we sometimes start it by saying, look, no news is bad news because we don't know what's going on. Bad news is good news because we want to see variance early. And good news is no news because if there's no variance, we don't need to talk about it, right? So what that looks like sort of mechanically is on that graph that I have, I'm going to carry my past production and my past forecasts. And so part of what you're sort of looking for from me and expecting from me is that my forecasts are pretty good. So I'm not allowed to change my past forecast to match my past production. So over time, you'll see, hey, Ed's pretty good at forecasting his work. When he says this is going to go off the rails, I have reason to believe him. The team has reason to believe him. We probably should adjust to that. Otherwise, it just becomes, like you said, sort of a fingers in the ears. Don't bring me bad news and don't tell me, that, you know, just to go fix it kind of thing. But that doesn't really work. Yeah, I'm right with you there. And so on the second practice, the work preview meetings, could you give us some perspective or, or tools on, on what are some great ways to provide previews? Well, so, so you know, one of them is that graph. So, so I'm going to come in and I'm going to say, hey, Pete, you know, I've got this problem. I've got some variants. I need to talk about it. So once you've got a team that's, that's presenting that to you and recommending to you what goes on the agenda, that sets you up to say, okay, of all these different variances, I'm going to put this, this, and this on the agenda. So one of the practices is as the manager of managers, have people tell you, you know, 24, 12, whatever hours in advance, here's my biggest variance that I want to talk about. And then you be in charge of building the agenda and saying, okay, from my perspective, these are the most important ones. Once you're in the conversation, we have something called the, the OSIR, O-S-I-R, it's an acronym, the OSIR report. And that just stands for Objective, Status, Issue, and Recommendation. So, so you've, you manage me to make that kind of report. So you say, Ed, you're going to make your report now. Tell us about the variance. I'm there with you, my boss, and my peers. And I'm going to say, my objective is X, Y, and Z, as you know, because you've heard this from me before, because of my output and status broadcasting. My status is, here it is on my graph. You can see the variance. You've seen my graph before. You know how to read it. So that takes a minute. My issue is the root cause of my variance. You know, whatever that is, I'm short on people or, you know, things are happening differently than I thought. And R is my recommendation. I recommend to the team that X, Y, Z happen, that Fred give me some of his resources, that you relax my deadline, that I do this or that thing. Right. So what that does is in about three minutes, it tees up the conversation. It's not 10 or 15 minutes of me talking about reasons and root causes. It's me talking for a very short period of time, putting a recommendation on the table, a straw man, and then saying, OK, now you know, here's what I think we should do. What are we going to do? You're the boss, Pete, but we as a team are going to decide together. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. That is helpful, certainly. And especially because if, if your variance is bad, you're, it's probably a very natural temptation to to make excuses and to share numerous 
reasons, external factors that can contribute to it just so that the folks you're reporting to don't think that you are underperforming because you're baby sensitive uh, about it. You're, you're not delivering on what you, you hope to be delivering. But when you sort of summarize it in terms of this is the expectation is that we go in, in this format, it's going to take three minutes. I think that could really go a long way in, in, in reducing the, the length of long meetings. Well, it does. You know, one, one other piece that's important is we always say discussions of status and discussions of history are minimized, not eliminated, but minimized. So we do in that same meeting, the first thing that'll happen for the first, let's say, five minutes is me and all my peers will just put up all our graphs all at once. That's that dashboard concept and say, you know, here's what I'm doing. This, this, and this are going well. This one we're going to talk about in a few minutes, right? My next, next peer goes and says, we're all on track here. Next peer goes and says, you know, these three are a little behind. We talked about that last week. Right. So there's this very brief kind of quick status update that takes maybe 10 minutes out of the hour, if that. What that does, to your point, is it starts to let people see. So my peers and you, to some extent, start to see, you know, hey, Ed's house isn't on fire. He's not just a collection of problems. He's running this whole thing. It's mostly going okay. Now he's asking for help in this area. It's a way of building trust because you're right. If all we ever did was bring in our problems, then what happens is pretty soon my peers see me as nothing but a collection of problems and then we lose trust. So that. That little brief status at the front end, which educates us about each other's graphs, also educates us as to the fact that we're trustworthy. Then from there, we can go into that brief format and have a conversation. That's right. Cool. Well, so then let's hit the group decision-making piece there. You mentioned voting is not the, the greatest of means to arrive at decisions. What are some key ways that we arrive at optimal decisions? Yeah, so that's, that's I, should, I always feel like I should preface this by saying this is not political commentary. This is business, small group decision-making, but voting produces a rational result. Now, some people have said, well, we think that's true in politics as well. That's <laughs> to the listener to decide. But what we know is if, if we put a group of people together and say, you know, we're going to vote on the best answer, then the focus turns to garnering support, right? So I'm not going to worry too much about information. I'm going to say, hey, you know, peer number one, if you go with me on this one, I'll go with you next time. I'll owe you a favor kind of a thing. That may be good for me and peer number one, but that's not so good for the organization, right? So we can't do voting. Consensus, which is we don't do anything until we all agree has been shown to produce good quality decisions. The problem is the time. By the time we get everyone to agree, we're too late for the business cycle. So we go into what's called a consultative mode. Now, traditional consultative decision-making is Pete's the decider, we're all not the decider, we each talk to you one-on-one, then you make a decision. That's okay, but what we know is in these complex scenarios where everything's interdependent, I actually need to hear my peers talking to you, and you need me to hear my peers talking to you because they're going to raise an issue that I have information about. And so we do what we call group consultative, which is each of us has a job to teach you what we know. And, and that's important. You basically say to us, my agreement at this moment is off the table. Here's how I'm leaning or not. But my agreement is off the table. Teach me what you know. And then I say to you, Pete, if we don't do this, X, Y, and Z are going to happen. And you say to me, and I think what you're telling me is from your perspective, if we don't do this, this, and this, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen. Do I understand that? And I say, yes, that's it. And then that part of the conversation is done, right? So it relieves me of the stress of feeling like I have to convince you to go my way. It also puts the focus on information transfer. So you learn as much as you can from all the team members in the process they're learning from each other. And then as the decider, we already know before we start, it's going to fall to you to make the decision. And the decision you make is not necessarily the most popular decision. Might or might not be. It's not a vote. You know, it's not a who spoke the loudest or who spoke the most. It's you saying, hey, I'm the person in this seat and I've got the role of decider. And based on what you all are teaching me right now, here's my decision. 
And here's another tip your listeners can use. Your decision isn't done until the team can say it back to you, both what was decided and your rationale for it. So not only Pete decided to give X number of dollars from Fred to Ed, but because he and we believe that Ed's work in this area is higher priority or more immediate or whatever, right? That's important because we're talking about managers. The managers have to be able to take that decision back to their teams and say, here's what we as a management team decided and here's why. And so I call that commissioning. The decider makes sure to take the time that everyone understands both the decision and the rationale before we consider the decision to be complete. Okay. Now, when you started that conversation, hey, teach me what you know, you said, I'm putting agreement to the side. What do you mean by that? Well, oftentimes, I mean, I'm sure you've had these experiences and many of us have, you know, we may know that you're going to make the decision, right? Right, Pete? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to say to you, Pete, you know, you've got to go my way and here's why. And you're going to start to detect some emotional content in there. And I'm, I'm going to be animated and I'm going to maybe not even stop talking because I feel like you haven't come around yet. But once you say to me, look, we're not at the part of the process where I'm going to agree with you or not. We're just at the part of the process where my job is to understand you. Let me say back to you, Ed, what I think you just told me. Do I have it right? And if I say, yes, you have it right, then you say to me, well, do you have anything else to add, other information I need? And I go, yes, here's some more. And, and you know, we do that until I finally say, that's all the information I have. So it's a way of getting the information out of me while sort of relieving me of both the pressure and stress and also the reality of trying to convince you. Because then you can literally turn to me and say, Ed, thank you. Thank you for the information. I'm going to consider that. I can appreciate that you're, you know, not only is this difficult for you logistically, but it's going to be really kind of an emotional thing for you. I've learned that as well, but I need to move on now and hear what the others have to say. And it opens up the airtime because everyone has something to contribute in terms of facts and information. Nobody feels that need to sort of filibuster, right, until you come around. Yeah, understood. So that, that is helpful. Would you segment or separate those, those dimensions from each other? Well, now I'm curious, when it comes to the frontline self-sufficiency, what tend to be the bottlenecks, the obstacles that mean we, we don't have the frontline self-sufficiency, that kind of the, the recurring things that, that folks need but don't have so they can't do what they need to do? You know, on one level, the frontline self-sufficiency is, is one of the easiest, maybe the easiest of the key practices to understand because the components all kind of tie together very simply. It's really three things that lead to a fourth. Uh, your frontline employees need to have clear output goals just to say they know what they're supposed to do and they can count it, they know what it is. That one's pretty easy to understand. Self-managed feedback, which means they are tracking their own work more frequently than management is tracking it. So it's not a question of management telling them what's going on. It's a question of them already knowing how they're doing. And then the third thing is what I call control resources. And that just means they have what they need to do the job, right? So if there's, if there's material or something they need, they can get to it. Again, that's not always easy to do. Not too hard to think about. But the formula is goals plus feedback plus resources equals forecasts. And, and what happens is once you have a workforce that's equipped that way, they know what they're supposed to do. They know if they're doing it and how well they're doing it and how fast they're doing it. And they have everything they need at their disposal to do it then they start to be able to make those forecasts. They start to be able to say, when the boss asks on Tuesday or Wednesday, what are we looking like for Friday? They can say, I'm on track. This is typical. You know, I'm a little behind, but it's recoverable. I'm way behind. And that's the information that gets rolled up into that, into that second forecast, right? That second future line where I say, hey, boss, hey, Pete, here's what I know is going to happen in the next you know, two to six weeks. I'm getting that from the front line because they're the ones that actually know where we are. So without the frontline self-sufficiency, forecasting becomes sort of academic and hypothetical, and the process does not work nearly as well. Understood. Well, and so I'm also wondering when 
people don't have those things, either the goal is unclear or, or the feedback is incomplete or the resources are also incomplete, you know, what are the things you see time and time again are among the most common things that are incomplete and, and missing from the self-sufficiency picture? You know, it's in terms of specifics, it varies, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the ones that's often missing, not surprisingly, is clear goals, right? So we have someone who, you know, they know their job is to, let's say, get these orders filled. That's a goal, but there's not really a how fast or turn time or anything like that. And so if you sort of ask them how it's going, they go, it's okay, you know, and if you say, are you on track ahead or behind? They sort of almost can't answer you because yeah. it's not a clear enough goal, right? So that's, that's one failure mode. Another one is maybe the goal is clear, but the resource control is an issue. So it's like, you know, you have to get these orders filled or whatever, but there's a step in your process where you have to get approval for, I don't know, a shipment, let's say. And sometimes that approval takes two hours and sometimes it takes three days. And so then when I ask you for a forecast, you know, my frontline for a forecast, they'll say, well, you know, I'm okay, but I don't know what's going to happen because I have to turn this thing in. So it'll either be Wednesday or Friday, right? And so that's, a, that's an issue of control of resources. So it's a different thing, but it's also in the way of that forecast. It's a good way to kind of look backwards and say, if you can't get a fair forecast, a reasonable forecast, you can look back and say, okay, why can't they do it? Is it because, is it because they don't know what the goal is? Is it because they don't know how they're doing at it? Or is it because there are these things that are out of their control in the way? It's always one of those three. Right. Yeah, that, that's a helpful framework in terms of segmenting that into discrete pieces. And, and I guess I'm thinking about, you know, sometimes we have no idea because it's like, we've never done this before. You know, it's, it's new stuff. That, and so I, I guess that's sort of like feedback is missing and maybe not so much from management, but just from almost like the work itself. It's like we, we're entering new uncharted territory and uh, I, I don't know how long it's going to take for me to learn how to do this thing or to build this thing that we've never built before. Yeah, that's a reality. And, and that can actually happen just like that. But one of the things we also know is there's a whole major category of work out there that we call troubleshooting work, which is, you know, the phone rings. You think of a call center for, you know, computer repair or something, right? The phone rings and the problem is put in front of me. And if I'm the frontline worker, I don't know what the work is until I get the problem. And so in that kind of scenario, although it's true that I could say, well, I don't exactly know how long the next one's going to take because I don't know what it is. There are still tools we can use around those goals and feedback and resources to make forecasting possible. So one of the tools we use is batch queues, right? So I can say, I have this many issues which are received and undiagnosed, meaning it's in my queue to figure out the problem. I have this many issues which are diagnosed but unsolved, meaning I know what the problem is, but I'm not done implementing it yet. And then I have this many that are solved. Sometimes, you know, people will further segment those into something like category A, category B, whatever. These take longer than those. But when you start to see individual contributors who work on that kind of work use those kind of systems, what starts to happen is they can, again, start to make forecasts. So you'll say midweek, how are you doing? Now, they can't tell you what the next thing on the phone is going to be. But they can say, you know, normally at this time of the week, I have 15 things that are received and undiagnosed. And right now I have 42. So I am behind, right? Or normally I have this many of type B solutions to implement. And I only have 10% as many right now. So I'm ahead. You know, even though we're all doing things to some extent we've never done before, you can start to work around that a bit and still get some intelligence to the system about, you know, within some broad bounds, what does this week look like relative to your other weeks of doing things no one's ever done before? We still need that information. And when it comes to the forecast, you mentioned it being fair and you use the term a fair day's work forecast. What precisely does that mean? And how would you contrast that with the alternative? Well, that idea of a fair day's work forecast is, you know, once I have those three things, if I'm a frontline worker, I've got those goals, self-managed feedback and, and control resources, then I can know what I can accomplish reasonably, right? 
I think traditional managers will be afraid of this. They say, well, how do I know they're not going to sandbag or how do I know they're not going to lie? But what we know about humans is they tend to try and perform pretty well, most of them. And so once I sort of know what I can get done in a fair day's work, I can start to make a forecast and say, you know, again, I'm ahead, I'm on track, I'm behind. That's contrasted with, in the North American management model, the boss tells me how much to do, and then I either do it or I don't. So what happens? Well, for one thing, I can only do so much, and my capacity doesn't change by my boss's opinion. However, my presentation of what I'm doing will change, right? So you're going to tell me, get this much done or not, and if I can't reasonably do it, and I want to survive, which I do because I have that reptile part of my brain that's geared towards survival, then I'm going to paint a picture or tell a story or find a reason why that wasn't possible, and I'm going to sort of make it okay, right? And if, if the boss is really setting unreasonable goals, nobody can do it, then whoever has the most reasonable story gets to keep their job, and that's how it plays out. But now we've got some really bad information in the organization because we have these quote-unquote expectations that, first of all, aren't realistic, and now we've got this layer of storytelling on top of it, which is, here's, you know, here's how you get around that, and that'll get trained to new people, right? And so, so it, this is where management ceases to be functional and starts becoming ceremonial, right? And now we're getting the work done despite management instead of thanks to the feedback and adjustment of management. That's what we're really trying to avoid. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it takes a pretty good level of understanding in terms of, of what's really on your plate and what you're really committed to in order to, to have those. I, I, think, I think there's a lot of people in work life experience almost sort of like a chaotic sea of just too much that, and, and it's kind of just all a big old cesspool of requests and action items. And, and for many, it's a matter of uh, what is uh, latest and loudest, you know, the most urgent and, and terrifying fire that, that they need to, to handle. And it's not a really fun way to live. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's more than that. I'm going to use your cesspool <laughs> quote, but it's, it's, I mean, it takes years off your life. Like it's not even funny. It literally does. Right. So and that, that goes back to that output and status broadcasting, which is one of the things we advise managers at all levels is you need to have three or five or seven things which you can use. It's almost like an elevator pitch, right? To summarize the output you're delivering. And that output and that story and that summary needs to be presented over and over again to your next level, your next level, so that people understand what they're doing. Because we're all subject to overload, right? We're all subject to that cesspool of endless stuff. And if there's not a clear drumbeat from management saying, here's what we're measuring, here's what we're doing, here's what we're forecasting on, here's where we're going, then it is, it's just easy to get lost. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. You know, I think probably the last thing I would say is, as you think about this, as the listeners think about this, I've found that there's some confusion and that we need some more language around managing. So when you become a manager, you know, you start reading and, and getting advice about how to manage people. I like to call that managing with a capital ing. And that is true for anybody who manages people, right? You have to set goals, you have to deal with compensation, you have to help them solve their issues, you have to help them develop. That's all tremendously important. There's another category of work that I call management with a capital mint. And that is being a member of the broader team of managers who together work in concert with each other in coordination with each other to coordinate and adapt the resources of the organization to achieve its goals. I believe that most of what's written for managers is written about managing with a capital ing, And my book, Iterate, is written about management with a capital mint. And I think it's complementary and equally important and often overlooked. Oh, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, you know, one that I really like is, uh, it's from Pema Chodron, who's actually a Buddhist, but she says, we are all capable of becoming fundamentalists because we get addicted to other people's wrongness 
And I like that kind of on a personal level, but I also like it on a group meetings level. We've all been in meetings where someone was a fundamentalist because they were addicted to everyone else's wrongness. Mm, thank you. How about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? You know, there was, a, there was a, a study done years ago by a very famous guy named Ash who did, it was about social conformity. And the idea was, you know, five people around a table and you show all five people these different lines and two of them are the same length and you ask them which two. And the first four people give the wrong answer, but they're in on it. The question was, will the fifth person speak out against the group or will they go along? And overwhelmingly, they went along. But the piece that I find myself quoting is, that thing's been, that's from the 60s, it's been redone a lot of times, but somewhere in the, like around, around 2005, 2006, somebody did it again with an MRI machine on the subject. And, and the question was, are they just sort of rolling over and they secretly know the answer, but they're not saying it? Or is their perception being changed? And, you know, Ash himself always thought it was just a question of people, they, they just didn't have the something, the courage or the, the stamina to speak up. What we found out was it actually changes your perception. So mm. groupthink is more than we thought. It's not just about a lack of courage. Your perception changes. And, and that just, I think, highlights the importance of if you see a difference, speak out in a group. Because even if you're wrong, just you speaking out might help the next person who actually sees the real thing to actually be able to see it. You're actually helping the perceptiveness of the group. Oh, that's a nice implication to highlight. Thank you. Yeah. And how about a favorite book? I'm just finishing up a book called The Insightful Leader by Carly Ann Ferguson. And it's, it's about, it's sort of the flip side of the coin to play to your strengths, which is how any one of those strengths, like results orientation or something, can become a, a hindrance. And I think she did a really good job of explaining it got you here, but also it can become a hindrance and how to, how to sort of keep your strength, but not overdo it. And a favorite tool? Couple Ladder of Inference by Chris Argyris. If you don't know that one, you can Google it. Uh, it talks about how we build our sort of our, our perceptions of what's going on around us. Uh, the other one is if you don't know Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I won't try and spell it, but just look for Flow. It's about sort of having these great experiences of enjoying ourselves, and it has to do with challenge and knowledge or ability being held in balance. I, those have been useful to me personally, but also professionally. And my hats off for correctly pronouncing his name. I imagine you've practiced it before. I did one of my whiteboard videos. I have a series of whiteboard videos mm -hmm. and I actually called his office and said, please just say his name to me enough times that I can get it because I don't want to say it wrong. And now I've got good notes on it. <laughs> I've Googled it myself. <laughs> uh, well done. And uh, how about uh, favorite habit? You know, it, it's sort of boring, but I, I live my life by my calendar. I've got my calendar on a separate monitor next to me at all times. And I, I schedule everything from meetings to things I have to do. And, and I, I think I would be, I would, guess, 80% less effective if I didn't live by my calendar. So I feel like that's a, that's a good one. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks who are listening to you? It's from my mentor, actually. That the quote is, you can't bake a pie one slice at a time. It, his name is Bill Daniels. Uh, he taught me a lot of this stuff when I first got into the space. And, uh, and it, it's about that idea of those linked teams, which are, you know, you can't assign Ed to one thing and Fred to something else and, and Pete to something else and then knit it all together later. If you're a team, you have to act like a team. You can't bake a pie one slice at a time. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? A couple places, iteratenow.com. That's just I-T-E-R-A-T-E, now.com. That's the site for the book. It's got my bio and my social media handles and things like that. My firm is Group Harmonics, again, groupharmonics.com. And that's where our, our offerings and classes and stuff are. Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, I think the thing I would say is, We've been talking about without talking about culture, right? The culture around us. And I think people tend to feel powerless. You know, on that, on that walk to your car, it's like the culture is the weather. But the culture really isn't the weather. The culture has actually been clearly defined by people that have thought about it a lot as the collection of habits we took forward from the past, right? So the implication is what you're doing now 
is going to become the culture of tomorrow. So if you're walking to your car, it's not the weather, it's your habits. It's how you swing your arms. It's whether you smoke a cigarette, those kind of things. And so I think my challenge is, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a world where it seems like management is more ceremonial than functional, don't just say, oh, that's the culture, nothing I can do and throw your hands up. Instead say, oh, that's the culture. What can I do differently today that people will notice and repeat tomorrow so that I can change the culture? Mm, lovely. Well, Ed, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you tons of luck with your book, Iterate, and all you're up to. Pete, thank you. Likewise, enjoyed the time and, and good luck with your show. This time, my favorite takeaway happened when Ed and I were discussing the study. So he was looking at the lines of different lengths. And if you'll recall, that study is when you have some Confederates who all say they perceive a line to be one length when it is clearly not at all that length. And then the real person kind of goes along frequently. And so Ed brought up the the new research, which said they had them in an MRI. In so doing, we got to see if they were just sort of being cowardly and suppressing what they actually thought or if their perception was being changed and their perception was changing. And thusly, the inspirational takeaway for me, it's huge, is if you speak up and maybe offer a different or contrary point of view, you are actually improving the perceptiveness of the whole team. I think that's so cool because it's it's often much easier to kind of shrink and, and go the party line and say what everybody else is saying. But if you do the opposite, not only are you introducing a new idea, which is fun and worthy and may well be the optimal idea, but you are improving the whole team's perceptiveness, which is pretty cool. So I dug that and more from Ed. Hope you did too. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F390. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest, it's Dr. Sean Jones, and he is talking about finding heart in art, ways to proactively beat out burnout. Hope you catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.